All right, everybody, welcome back to another edition of Behind the Yellow Line, a baseball podcast. The Ryan Sandberg Show today, episode number 23 for us as the Cubs wrap up a brief and difficult road trip in New York. They take the finale two to nothing tonight in New York. The Cubs coming home now for a long homestand and a lot to talk about on this show. We've got Jeremy Spector. We've got Randall J. Sanders. We are going to talk about the Cubs three game sweep over the St. Louis Cardinals. We'll recap the three out of four losses against the New York Mets. Some pretty big baseball news too. the sport clamp down on sticky substances, something Randall knows a thing or two about. So we'll talk about how that impacts this Cubs pitching staff, what we can expect. Um, also, we had a request here from a fan of the pod, Stan, wanted to talk a little bit about run differential in Major League Baseball. So we'll look at the NL, we'll look at the American League. We'll see here in the middle of June what we can make of run differential in baseball right now. A little bit later in the show, then we've got some fun. We have got some Cubs trivia. Randall's got an old box score he's digging up, and then we'll do one more game of Cubs Killers. So a lot to get through here. Before we talk Cubs, though, Jeremy on a brand new microphone sounding like Eddie Vedder himself. Big news today. Bears attempting, perhaps, to put a bid out in Arlington. Jeremy, are we going to see an Arlington Heights Bears team in the next decade? Yeah, and before we go, I just do want to give a little shout out to my sister and her husband. Thank you for for purchasing this nice microphone for me for my birthday. So getting good use out of it already. But uh, yeah, that's huge news, right? The Bears putting out a tweet, uh, Ted Phillips with a statement saying that they have put in a bid for the Arlington racetrack. Uh, Obviously, that's, you know, that's major news. Uh, That's it's probably more serious than anything they've kind of done in the past, actually putting in a bid for the property. I'm still a little skeptical. I feel like it's a little bit of a negotiating tactic because I just don't see the Bears actually putting up the cash, the money they've got buy the property, then build the stadium. The NFL will help out a little bit. Then they got to ask, you know, the Arlington or the county or somebody if whether or not because the McCassies aren't a wealthy. They only own the Bears, a wealthy family. So I feel like it's kind of like not quite the same as when Ricketts was talking about, you know, moving to Rosemont or whatever, but, you know, trying to put some pressure on the city of Chicago, who they have a lease that goes till 2033. I did think it was funny. Uh, I thought Lori Lightfoot's a little she threw a little bit of shade at the Bears, telling them that what they uh, need to focus on being the Packers and being relevant past October. I thought that was <laughs> a pretty, pretty good little shade that she threw on that. But uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, if the Bears ever were able to do something like that, uh, you know, they could be like the most valuable franchise in the NFL. It's kind of mm-hmm. they kind of are shooting themselves in the foot a little bit like they're not really taking advantage of all their, you know, money opportunities. But in a league like the NFL, like with a huge salary cap, I, I don't know. I, it's like I we're all talk about the Ricketts family, you know, you know, hoarding money. So like. It, it, it what advantages do you really get if if it's just making money for the McCaskey family or whatever whoever ends up owning the Bears? Uh, I, I just hope that it really increases the fan experience of the team winning for it to actually be a major change if they do do something along those lines. Randall, you think the Bears are going northwest? You know, as Jeremy said, saying they're putting a bid in on the property is probably not nothing. I'm probably more inclined to agree that it ends up not being something, but you're, you're still at least claiming that you're about to put the money up. So, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm sure all the horses out there at the racetrack are gossiping about it. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully they get news about it soon. I'm still pissed. We're losing the racetrack. Always a good yeah, time too. 
get out there and see the horses and have some fun with it. And with sports gambling being a much bigger player, I've thought there'd be a lot of opportunities at that racetrack. Um, I do think there's some weight to this though. I don't know that the bears are going to end up in Arlington park with a brand new stadium, but you can understand why it would be compelling to a team, the opportunity to build a stadium that would see probably 20,000 more people than what you get on the lakefront, the potential of putting in a roof, which could bring in winter events, the super bowl, the final four big 10 championship. These are all things that could potentially be drawn there. There's a lot of money at stake there. So I, my preference would be to see the Bears playing on the lakefront, playing outside. That's just as a football fan and as somebody who enjoys National Football League. I know how it works, though, financially, and I think that's why this is very interesting to see what's happening here. But it is nice with an exciting young quarterback, some optimism, I think, just around the franchise, and maybe some new owners coming in the next decade as well. All of these things make it interesting, and that's better than what we've had for most of the last decade. Definitely. And, you know, obviously it should be of interest to the Bears and anything they can do to solidify themselves give themselves stronger even even if like i said it's just negotiating tactic or whatever it gives them a stronger place to be in where if they have something to go back fall on where like well maybe they do end up with this land then they have something maybe they can build there as you mentioned bring in other events uh obviously you know concerts would probably be a big deal they don't you know really get a cut out of that with the at soldier and other things along those lines so you know but uh, so we'll see. I mean, I, I, I it's probably not something if it happens that we're talking probably next decade, 2030s, yeah. but it's got to start somewhere and you got to plan long term. So we'll see. And the McCaskies, you know, Virginia's getting old and they got 11 kids. Who knows who wants to be involved when that happened and the old man died in the 80s. That took like 10 years to sort out uh, his estate. So we'll see what happens there. They may have to sell. Randall, really quickly here before we shift gears back to the Cubs, and we'll keep it with the Cubs the rest of the way, potential names for a stadium in Arlington Heights. I saw someone, maybe you earlier today, throwing out Portillo's Park. What do you go for naming rights well, out that for was, a new Bears stadium? That was Jeremy, of course. I could, I could never be that clever, but I also don't think we'd be anywhere near that lucky. Portillo's Park would be a great name. <laughs> Certainly, we would end up with some soulless name involving two Chicago or Northern Illinois-based corporate entities again i think i suggested walgreens field at cdw stadium something just completely and totally without any kind of character is what we would end up with what do you think jeremy i liked portillo's park you know you got hey man the beef box the beef box beef box is legit i you know what i you can't top the beef box i'm just gonna stick with that so we'll see. We'll see what ends up with the Bears. Um, we're here to talk Cubs, though. It's been sort of a roller coaster week. Randall, the big roller coaster fan in the group here. But I think your heart's been hurting the last couple of days. So it starts real nice. The Cubs get the three-game sweep over the Cardinals, a real statement victory at Wrigley Field last weekend. Then they go to New York, and, you know, we knew this was going to be tough. There's injuries on the pitching staff. New York's got a wonderful roster, some very good pitching. And the Cubs only win one game. But I think if you're going to win any game, it probably feels good to win on getaway day the first shutout this season on the road for the Cubs they win two nothing tonight and Randall you got really good play today from guys that you needed to step up here in in a, in a game like this your ace Kyle Hendricks going out there and shoving for six innings Kimbrell doing his thing in the ninth the Cubs needed this today and even though they lost three out of four games I think they're feeling pretty good coming back to Wrigley to take on the Marlins yeah, it's, it's a rough series. You would have liked to have beat up on David Peterson in game one, a guy who's really struggled over his last couple starts, and they couldn't do that. But the funny thing is that for as bad as the series went, they did not lose any ground, courtesy of the Reds beating up on the Brewers. And depending on what Ronan's Rockies 
uh, do tonight. It's possible that for all the struggles this series, the Cubs could arrive in Chicago again in sole possession of first place. So as they say, easy come, easy go. It's not the series you would have liked to have, but luckily it's not going to cost them in the short term. And hopefully they can take advantage against the Marlins this weekend. It's a tough series, you know, going to New York, it's same as going to San Francisco, playing four games. They're going to do it again, go to L.A. at the end of the month and play four games. And it's tough to play. These are good teams. Uh, these are good teams. The Cubs are in a very difficult stretch. And I think, you know, you got to take what you can get. They pull out a win today. It's huge to salvage that game. Uh, get one on New York. You don't want to get swept. You don't want to lose four. Um, but you want to get one. They were able to get the one tonight. They had some opportunity earlier in the series. They had that game, you know, game two with the late send from Willie Harris. As Randall mentioned, you would like to have seen them beat up a little bit on David Peterson. They didn't really get that, really do that. They kind of hit him well early, but then the bats kind of just went to, to sleep after the second inning of that game. But, you know, look at tonight. Look what's going on. You, you, you take a win off of uh, the Mets, you, you look at Atlanta and they beat the, the Cardinals Padres just went up one, nothing on the Reds and the brew are the Brewers are losing five, nothing on the Rockies. So you can end up after this four game set, you can end up in a pretty good spot coming back home to face the Marlins who you hope to beat up on. So, you know, it's baseball, it's a long season and it's a difficult month. So I, I feel like you can't, you knew going in Stroman, DeGrom, even though he didn't pitch as much, uh, I forgot who the other starter was, but it was pretty legit. We went uh, before to grab uh, there. The Mets have really good pitching. So like, oh, uh, Taiwan Walker. So it's going to be tough. You know, it's, these are going to be tough games. So I, I can't get too down on that, especially coming off a three game sweep of the Cardinals, which we all love. Yeah. We'll talk about that Cardinals series in a minute. Um, Randall, I wanted to ask you, though, we've seen a lot of different guys on the mound for the Cubs this year. Adbert's been out with the injuries, so they've been trying some different folks. What did you think of Robert Stott, right? You know, that comes in Robert, from Boston, and what, what do you think of what he did? You know, he's an interesting case as a starter. He was put in the rotation at Iowa because they are so bereft of starting pitching down there, which is not a good sign. Uh, and he's down in Iowa. He's been holding high 90s triple digits all the way through the fourth inning. So you had a spot open in the rotation. Uh, it, it, I don't see any big problem in principle with trying something, you know, if you were able to get four decent innings out of him, you might've said, okay, maybe you have something here. Maybe he's a guy who cannot just pitch in short relief for you, but maybe he's a guy who can give you two or three innings, two or three times a week. I think the biggest problem last night in that game was David Ross left him in just an inning too much. You know, he got you through three and it wasn't great, but you were still in the game. And then of course, in that fourth inning, the, what would have been the game deciding runs scored. So, you know, the walk rate was only 4.9% in his innings at Iowa this season. And of course he walked six batters yesterday, which that's how it goes. So, you know, you had a spot on the rotation. I don't necessarily fault the Cubs for trying something that was sort of working in Iowa. I don't think it is going to work in the long term up here. But, you know, Robert Stock is a hard thrower and you can never have too many guys who can hit triple digits. And he's a guy who I probably see contributing out of the bullpen down the road. I don't think it's going to be in the starting rotation. So I don't have a huge problem with them trying this out as long as you realize, okay, it didn't work. Let's try something different. If we have another spot in the rotation come up. I think that, well, first of all, I just want to say I, I'm, I'm rooting for Robert stock a lot. Um, but I, I think that the Cubs 
it would be in their best interest to go out and get us at least one starter as quick as they possibly can, you know, get a guy who you can solidify the rotation a little bit and then maybe closer to the deadline, possibly get another guy who could be like a difference changer because the way the Cubs have had some pitching issues with guys that are currently in the rotation, guys that have missed time, Trevor Williams, uh, Adbert. Now, you know, you've had to throw in Cole Stewart. They've had to throw Robert stock. I don't have a problem with putting these guys in games, but the Cubs rotation is struggling. They uh, it would really be nice to get it. Somebody who could solidify now, but that said uh, on Robert stock, just to go into Robert stock, I'm a fan of Robert stocks. I've loved him for a long time. Not love is the wrong word, but I've Ooh. been rooting for him for a long time just because I think, you know, I liked seeing guys that were all everything when they were young, like Robert stock, when he was like 13 years old was declared like the best baseball player in the United States, best like 13 year old baseball player. He basically was until like he was 15 and then he, he was going to be all everything first round pick. And he chose to go to USC as a two-way player. And he didn't have quite the career at USC, but then he got drafted in the second round by, I believe the St. Louis, Cardinals hated, but he's made his way through. He's an interesting foul on Twitter. He throws the ball really hard. 99 Randall's mentioning. I would like to see if there's something there that maybe I don't know if being in the rotation, as he said, is the best thing, but maybe he is a guy who come out of the bullpen throwing hard. I do go against a lot of some of this Twitter stuff bashing of David Ross last night. I kind of agree with Ross. I think, first of all, in that game, I don't think the Cubs pregame were really planning on really pushing that game hard. Uh, with DeGrom. They knew DeGrom was going to be a tough bet. They knew going into that game that they're probably letting, letting get some guy. I bet if KB was healthy, or excuse me, if they weren't facing DeGrom, KB would have played last night. But they're like, we're facing DeGrom. It's going to be a tough at bat. Let, let KB sit a little bit because just to rest that peaky an extra day. And so I think they had that thought process going in. Now DeGrom leaves in the fourth inning. They're down 3-1. I think Ross was basically still in the same thought process. If DeGrom was pitching, he's not pulling Robert Stock there because he's thinking we're not getting the runs anyways. I, he wants to get some guys some rest. He, I mean, just because they might have been fresh to go last night, some bullpen guys, you want to keep them fresh for later in the season. Like, they need the bullpen tonight. I mean, they could have. Kyle had, had you know, for a while there, he was running up a high pitch count. He was able to settle down a little bit, but they might've needed a couple extra guys tonight. So I think they're down three, one. I don't have a problem with him. It's just seeing if Robert stock can really get through the fourth inning, really get holds just because you want so much bull. You, you, you've been relying so heavily on the bullpen at some point, your starters, you need stars to go. The Cubs starters have been struggling to get through four or five innings every game. At some point, you just have to let a guy go and see if he can do it. And if they have to wear it, they have to wear it for a night. So I don't have a problem with Ross. I think some of it was a little too short-sighted and way too harsh on the way Ross managed that game last night. Jeremy, we'll probably get into this in a later edition of Behind the Yellow Line. But you mentioned the Cubs being in need of starting pitching help. Real quick, uh, Mike Petriello, the writer for MLB.com, listed some of the probably more wider known trade targets this, this trade season. And this is just the list of guys to be injured who might potentially be trade targets for a team looking for starting pitching help. Scherzer, injured. Matthew Boyd, injured. Spencer Turnbull, injured. John Gray, injured. Danny Duffy, Madison Bumgarner, Michael Pineda, uh, all injured. Uh, Kyle Gibson is probably going to be the top starting pitcher on the trade market just because he's one of the few guys who is healthy and effective. Uh, so trading for starting pitching is not necessarily going to be shopping at the store. You're going to be competing against a lot of teams who need the same thing. So it's going to be really interesting to see how a team like the Cubs, who is as uh, who plays their available resources as close to the vest, 
it's going to be interesting to see who they go for this trade season. And again, they claim they will be buying and you know, everybody in the organization knows you're going to need to add some pieces to this team. It'll be interesting to see where they go as they try and fill out the rotation. And I feel like that's something we can discuss in a future episode. Who are your top trade targets for the Cubs going into the month of July? Absolutely. And it's definitely something where they need to start spending money again. The ballpark's open. We saw that last weekend. Full houses all weekend with the Cardinals in. The Cubs need to start acting like a big market team again, right? What happened with Darvish was inexcusable. It shouldn't have happened. And the timetable moved up with COVID. Like things are open a little bit earlier than I think we all expected, at least more optimistic than what we were thinking back in March. So run with it now. The Cubs have to get back into the top five in payroll, and I think that's one advantage that they have the rest of the way this year. They don't have a lot of guys on the farm that I think they're going to be willing to give up to get pitching, but they've got the advantage of money, being able to play with money and being aggressive like a big market team, and I think that's critical for them. But you're right, Randall. We will look at potential arms. I think there's a couple of decent arms in Colorado that I'd like to see maybe where they end up, and maybe the Cubs can get aggressive there. The Rockies love piles of money that they can send to St. Louis along with their best player. So we'll definitely get into it, but starting pitching is definitely a concern for this team right now. Um, but they got some you know, pretty good starting pitching, too, uh, last weekend, including Zach Davies. Uh, this is a guy that we were really ragging on through the month of April. I was having weird images of him and you, Darvish, kind of really giving me nightmares. This guy's really locked it down, though, and what a difference it makes when a guy like Abbott goes out that Davies can come in and give you five, six innings every night. Yeah, uh, I was out there in the bleachers for that night with our good friend Ryan. Uh, we were both out there, and Zach Davies looked great. Uh, when he's getting that change, I mean, he was struggling a little bit in San Francisco with the change of command, I would say, putting it exactly where he wanted to. He wasn't quite getting the swings on it. But against uh, St. Louis, he looked great. And when that change is working, it's really effective pitch. It's, it's a really good pitch when it's working. And I, I think I would say in the month of May, he's really kind of settled down. Him and Kyle, both of them. Very similar pitchers as, as we've talked about before, but I've, they've both kind of settled down. They were not so good in early April, but it, it, it they've settled it down, and it's been huge for the Cubs to get some uh, success out of the rotation because they need it. Yeah. Uh, you can't rely on the bullpen every single night, as, as I just said, and the bullpen's been great, but you, 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 you need those guys to be fresh at some point. So when you get the great game on Zach Davies, you got it on Sunday, yeah. um, Craig Kibble came in at the end to shut it down. That's a huge, huge help to the Cubs. And the same thing basically tonight with Kyle Hendricks. Randall, you're a stats man. You like stats. Here's a stat that you're going to like. Cubs and Cardinals this year, six games, three in St. Louis, three in Chicago. Cubs have won five out of six now. That's a stat that you want right now in this Cubs-Cardinals rivalry. Absolutely. It's, I, I don't think I'm breaking any news here. It's better to win than to lose. Uh, and to especially, you, you want to set the tone for this, the season series early, because even if you struggle the rest of the way, you've got those wins in the bank in that season series. Uh, to whatever extent that matters, you know, the, the next time the Cubs and Cardinals meet, everything could look completely different. The division could turn upside down once again. But at the very least, there have been years where the Cubs have come into have ended the second series against the Cardinals on the wrong side of that. They've been the one in the five and one. So it's good to see this year so far that the Cubs are not struggling with this Cardinals roster. And that's good because they're not too many teams should struggle with this Cardinals roster. It's not the strongest team necessarily. And so it's good to see that through six games, you're not completely overmatched by one of the teams you're going to be competing with for the division title down the stretch. 
So the Cubs are going to come home to Wrigley Field. They've got this homestand coming up here. Miami's in town. Cleveland's in town. Cubs come home 39-30. and 30. Right now, 7 nothing is the score. The Milwaukee Brewers losing to the Fighting Dingers here in Denver. So that's looking very good that the Cubs are going to be one game up when they return to Wrigley Field for a rare Friday night game at Wrigley Field. We are going to talk about that. We'll also get some weather for both the Miami and the Cleveland series, but some big news coming in Major League Baseball that also impacts this Cubs team. Jeremy, they're cracking down on sticky stuff. Middle of the season, Major League Baseball has finally decided, hey, we got a problem here with sticky substances that pitchers are using to get a better grip on the ball. And uh, starting here in a couple of days, the crackdown is coming. So lots to unpack there. But my first question, Jeremy, you think this is a good thing or a bad thing for this Cubs pitching staff? Like the makeup of the guys with this staff, is this going to be a problem for the Cubs next week? I think generally it's a good thing for the sport overall. And for the Cubs, I think it's, it's interesting. First of all, I don't really think it's much of a factor for the starting rotation. I feel like the rotation for the most part are not really these kind of guys. I don't think Kyle Hendricks is really getting, you know, he's not a spin guy. I don't think there's some guys in the bullpen where it wouldn't surprise me if, it, if they had some stuff, uh, Tommy Nance being one of them, you know, I wouldn't surprise me if he had some stuff coming out of nowhere and then the spin rates have kind of dropped over the past couple of weeks. So it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I don't know, you know, uh, Tommy Hadovy, Mike Borzello, David Ross, they've all commented and they've all said, Hey, look, we appreciate it. We're look go. We're not arguing with it. We think it's going to be good for the game. We think it's good. We don't have problems with it in our clubhouse. We will, you know, play any way they want us to play. So if that's what those guys are saying, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, look what happened with the Cardinals and look what happened with the Cubs when they both had Joe West. Joe West came and took Giovanni Gallego's hat and the Cardinals threw a little fit on the field. They came and get, took Craig Kimbrell's hat and Craig Kimbrell said, you know what? I'm going to go out there and I'm still going to dominate. And he did dominate. He so did. Yeah. he, uh, it, and Kimbrell, you know, it's really more, uh, I feel like with Kimbrell and some other guys, the sunscreen and rosin, which I don't understand how they'll legislate that, or excuse me, how they'll enforce that first of all. And to me, it seems a little ridiculous to even get into some of those things that they have, but if they want to get rid of everything, I can understand it. But, uh, you know, Kimbrell tonight, his velo, not that it affects velo, but his velo was a little bit down. So I was a little interested. I haven't looked at his spin rates to see how they compared, but I was a little interested to see how he was doing. He, he still got through it. Um, so I don't really think it'll be as much. I mean, there's a couple guys like Tapera, maybe. I don't know. He pitched very well tonight, uh, but he, I could see him being a high spin rate guy, whether or not that has effect on him. But I don't really think the Cubs are quite that team. Although I will say it's funny just to go back a little bit uh, in that. SI Sports Illustrated article, um, Brian Harkins, the clubby, who all these guys are asking for to make, you know, these elite pitchers, your Garrett Coles, your Adam Wainwrights, your Max Scherzers, Justin Verlander, they're all going this guy in Anaheim to get, give me the, the good stuff. And who are the Cubs representatives? Tyler Chatwood and Edwin Jackson. <laughs> well, that's money like, well spent. It's like all these elite guys and Tyler Chatwood's like, is that the same stuff that Justin Verlander's using? I thought that was pretty funny. I hope Chatwood kept the receipt on whatever he got. Randall, what, what do you think, though, about the makeup of these Cubs pitchers? Like, is this what worries me a little bit? I was talking to my brother about this earlier today, and, and he was saying um, the Cubs strength this year has been there relief pitching. That's been a big reason why they've been so hot since May 1st. And if there are two or maybe three guys in there that are going to see a reduction in quality because they can't use the sticky stuff, 
that starts impacting the win column. And that's something that I think is a legitimate concern with this team. Yeah, Jeremy, Jeremy made the point. You're, you're probably not terribly worried about the starting rotation. None of them are big spin rate guys. You know, the bullpen, they've your your big three, Chafin, Tapera, Kimbrell, all pitched tonight. You would figure that with the crackdown coming in the next couple of days, if any of those guys were using substances on the baseball to to enhance their pitches, they'd be smart enough to have not done that this close to the crackdown starting. And all three of them pitched very well tonight. So you would hope that if there is there was a substance at work there that it's no longer at work and they're still able to pitch effectively without it and or that they were never using a substance on the ball in the first place. So I think watching them going forward is going to be key. Are, are the pitches breaking quite as much? Are they still as effective? If the, that deadline comes and goes and this bullpen is still pitching effectively, you can probably be reasonably sure that either they were not using a substance on the baseball or they picked a substance that is not going to be noticed. I'm not terribly concerned with this bullpen. Really my bigger issue is with how MLB implemented this in the first place, as is so often my issue with anything MLB does. The intentions (laughs) might have been from the right place, but the execution is poor. As they say, the road to the pitcher's mound is paved with good intentions. Yeah. I I just want to say one thing about thinking about Craig Kimbrell, you know, I, I want to say that this real spin rate drive kind of started within the last 10. I mean, guys have always been using substances on baseballs. Let's let's yeah. not get around that for hundreds of years. OK, so whatever. But I feel like with the cameras, with StatCast, with everything they've had with the the growth in the last 10 years, you can actually measure it now. So now yeah. you're 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 going after different grips. You're trying to find the spider tack, the different things. So measuring it, I feel like has really kind of put it on, you know, kind of created a, like a little bit of a substance war per se, where guys are able to measure it. They're able to really get into it, drive it, see how the spin is. And I know Craig Kimball is a little bit older now, but he did come up kind of in the period before that all started, I would say with the cameras and the stat cast, and he was excellent and elite. So, and now this Brian Harkins thing, the story with the club in Anaheim, that's going back to like 2005. Troy Personal was talking about doing things in the 90s. So maybe, you know, there, there were other other substances that guys were using. But just the whole, you know, driving, I really think I've really think over the last few years, it's really kind of upped itself a little bit. So I don't know if Craig Kimbrough was ever I mean, maybe he was using some of that stuff. But I feel like even before all that stuff he probably was a really good pitcher. So I think Kimbrell is a guy who probably mostly be fine. I mean, like I said, he was definitely a sunscreen rosin guy. You can see it on his hat all the time, but uh, I, that that's not one that had a real major effect. Like some of the other substances people were putting on the ball. Totally. Well, it's going to be something we're all going to be watching here next week. Like what pitchers maybe begin to dive or what pitchers are going to see their numbers regress. And it's not necessarily their next start or just next week. We're talking about the whole rest of the season. And yeah, we're coming up on the midway point. There's still a lot of baseball to play though. And and it's not just the Cubs, right? Other teams in the division, Milwaukee Brewers have really good relief pitching. They've got a couple really good starters. How are they going to be impacted by it? Cincinnati Reds are suddenly one of the hottest teams in baseball. They've won six in a row, eight of their last. 10 they play in a ballpark that I mean the ball just flies out all over the place so this is going to be very compelling we'll keep an eye on it you know it's going to dominate headlines and things um, it did lead to some funny quotes this week I don't know if you saw Pedro Martinez earlier in the week on MLB Network he had a quote basically talking about they were asking him you know what was happening when he was pitching in the last 15 20 years he had the great quote I dictate how I want my balls to be rubbed up Randall 
I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to say anything. I'll leave it at that. But very, very good quotes coming from some former big leaguers this week. Well, Pedro Martinez is the master of the one-liner. I would listen to that guy do say most things and be entertained by it. You know, it's it's there's an interesting parallel, I think, between cracking down on these substances and the Astros cheating scandal from a couple of years ago. The Astros obviously went above and beyond what's been quote unquote part of the game by having somebody signal to them, of course, with the trash cans and banging on it. When that all broke, there were people who have, who insisted that for years that's been part of the game is stealing signs. Really not really kind of being not terribly intellectually honest about the fact that there's a difference between your guy standing at second base and being able to decipher the catcher signs and relaying that to the dugout. If you can do that, that's on the other team for not hiding their signs. There's a difference between doing that and watching video to signal to your hitters with a trash can. There's a big difference between guys using sunscreen and rosin to be able to grip the ball. The, the most fundamental part of pitching, gripping the baseball and being able to feel the seams. There's a big difference between using that those perfectly legal substances and using this, whatever you want to call it, rubber cement, spider tack, goodness knows what else. Uh, to, to doctor up the baseball increase the spin right now. So uh, again, and, and MLB didn't do anything to the Astros players in part because they knew that they have uh, a long labor dispute with the players union coming up and they didn't want to rock that boat prematurely. But again, this is a case of MLB throwing everything out at once without any real consideration for kind of the, the basic needs of the pitcher in being able to grip the baseball. And my worry is that you're going to see a whole lot more hit by pitches and when, as that starts to increase, you can't be sure they're all going to be in the shoulder or the back or the hip places where the players can just walk it off. I'm worried you're going to see a lot more guys hit in the fingers, hit in the hands, hit on the kneecap, hit in the head, because all of a sudden you've told pitchers that they can't use the most basic combination of, of non-harmful grip substances in order to grip the baseball. So I'm worried about a little bit about player safety going forward. Well, I'm reminded of uh, the scene in Major League Two, one where Wild Thing hits the, the cutout of the batter right in the head, and then two where they're I having a conversation yeah. about putting all the stuff on the ball, you know, to, to, to make it do what it needs to do. Ronan, Randall, my very, that was my very first thought when this news yeah. broke. When Passan tweeted that the other night, the first thing that came to my head, Crisco, Bardall, Vagisil, any one of them, give me an extra two or three inches <laughs> drop on my curveball. Of course, if the umps are watching me closely, they'll just pull jalapeno juice up my nose, get it running. That was the very first thing that came yeah. to mind when P Passon put that story out the other night. It's telling, too. I mean, it has been part of the game for a long time, Jeremy. Yeah, uh, well, just to go back a little bit on Randall's point, uh, Major League Baseball is actually arguing that the opposite, that putting so all these substances on the ball is actually increasing hit by batters. Actually, if you look now, the hit by batters are like up as they are. And they're claiming that because guys are putting substances on the ball, it's giving them free. They think they have like free will to throw release, whatever they can as much spin, as much velo. And they've been more wild uh, than they have been in the past. I don't know what is true. Well, I guess we'll find out, but you know, Tyler glass now, blames this for his arm injury. He says that he's been great. He, when he got rid of all the substance, he had to grip the ball too hard, you know, and him gripping the ball too hard to try to actually control it is what put all this extra strain on his, on his UCL. And now he has a partial tear in his UCL and he blames it for it. Personally, I think it's good to get it out of the game. I think I don't, my parallels to the steroid era, you know, I'm not the steroid era. I was not happy with, you know, having all the steroids, whatever, but I think the way baseball handled it was very poorly and I, I think you want to get out of the game, but they actively encouraged it for years. Baseball's basic, or at least 
you know, tacitly encouraging it. Uh, and baseball's basically doing the same thing here. They tacitly encouraged this. They had this arms race. Everybody was trying to get there. You know, I, I would like to see what Theo was thinking about all this because he was right there in, in it and doing it all. And so, you know, I get it all. If they want to get it all out, I'm totally fine getting it all out. I don't know how some of it will be enforceable, but they that's their worry. Get it all out. Just I just don't want them to retroactively go back and like single out players, demonize certain guys. You know, everybody was basically doing it. It was an arms war, whatever. We we're all trying to get the best grip moving forward for the better part of the game. This is, we want to get it out. I don't have a problem with that. Jeremy, I don't strictly disagree with you that if, if you want to put everybody on 100% equal footing and take all the substances away, I, I'm not against that. My biggest problem would be, and yeah, I know they put out a memo to teams back in spring training that they were going to be looking into this and it's taking this long for the owners to gather evidence and present it to the league. If you're going to make a change like this, and again, it, including taking away sunscreen and rosin, make that change in spring training or make it in the off season. So as guys come into spring training, they can start getting used to that. I think announcing this in mid June, when you are already two, eight, ten 10 weeks, nine, 10 weeks into the season, I, I think it's again, poor execution. And again, I'm, I'm aware that they, gave the team's advance warning that this was coming. I, I don't think it's a great change to make mid-season. Randall, you've planted the seed for me, so I appreciate that. This is something I wanted to ask both of you about. We haven't talked about this until now. Um, as you gentlemen know, I like a good conspiracy. You want to talk chemtrails? I'm your guy. You want to talk harp? I'm your guy. I like getting into these things. It's fun to kind of do the brain exercise of different uh, conspiracy theories. We know that Major League Baseball is coming up on a contentious collective bargaining disagreement, right? They have to agree on something. They disagree on a lot of things. The timing is very interesting here to do this two months into the season. I got to say it. Is this a ploy from the owners to make the players look bad going into this collective bargaining big, big discussion they're going to have at the end of the season? I personally, I don't necessarily think it is, although it wouldn't surprise me if it's a side effect that they also kind of intended to get it is interesting to see the player the pitchers and the hitters going at each other a little bit a little so it's like you know them divide a little divide and conquer there i've kind of felt like it was more a reaction to that story that came out in los angeles or you know the past year off season with this lawsuit with brian harkins the clubby who there was an article about like i mentioned in sports illustrated uh you know for his wrongful dismissal in uh in Anaheim where he felt he was being singled out and he got fired. He was not bringing back for something that everybody does in major league baseball. That's something that was basically tacitly approved of. And at the last second, they're like, you know what? You can't do this. We have to get rid of you. And I kind of felt like baseball is kind of muddying the waters because of that. Like they don't want that whole scandal. So they're just going to come out and do it. And I, it does seem a little bit like, you know, I think Theo, somebody talked about it where they were like, look, we put this out there early. We said that we're going to be collecting balls. We're going to be looking at this. We're going to be, and he said, guys didn't change their behaviors. We were trying to get guys to change their behaviors on their own and they weren't changing their behavior. So now we're putting this more harsher kind of penalty on it over time because it, it didn't affect it. So we'll see. I don't know. I, I kind of agree with you. Like middle of the season, it's like what that's kind of ridiculous, like June 21st, right? To start enforcing rules that have always never like not been enforced. But they did like say these things. They did say like it's gonna come if you guys don't change. We will do it. So some of that is on the players. Ronan, philosophically, I wouldn't necessarily put it past the league to try and do something and make the players look bad publicly. They did it all throughout negotiations to start last season. 
they would put these details out there and paint it as, well, the players aren't agreeing to this, even though the players were not getting what they wanted out of it. And the certain reporters were all too happy to paint it in that light. So I wouldn't necessarily put it past the league to want to do that and paint the players in that light. What I'm probably skeptical about is the league effectively pulling that off because I don't know that Manfred and the people below him are necessarily competent enough to pull off a conspiracy theory like that without being found out. Never attribute to malice what can just be explained by incompetence and simple poor execution. So I wouldn't put it past MLB to want to do what you're suggesting. I'm more skeptical in being told to believe that they were able to do it successfully. Well, I would just say if there's one thing Rob Manfred is competent at, it is breaking basically the players union and getting a good deal for the owners yeah. as a labor lawyer. That guy, he's been, that's the only reason that's he has the job is because exactly he right. was the labor their lawyer, their head lawyer. Then he moved up and moved up in the world. And he was, and he's been able to, you know, the Tony Clark led players union has had a lot of issues. And I, I, to be honest, I feel like they might need some new leadership maybe not a former player. Yes. No, I, I agree with you there. Um, they need strong leadership. They're going up against the snake and he's good at what he does. And I always laugh when people say, Oh, Rob Manford needs to be fired or they need to get rid of the commissioner. I don't think people realize the job of the commissioner, what he's responsible for. I think the major league owners love what they've gotten out of Rob Manford. He's doing exactly what they need him to do. The league is making a Most ton of, of money. Yeah. And I mean, it, but he, he is a lightning rod. I think there he draws... are, few, I think there's a few that don't think he's doing enough. And I think one might be on the South side of this That's, town. Sure. Sure. <laughs> but I think that, you know, you think he's a lightning rod for criticism in a way that can deflect it from a lot of owners and a city like Denver is a perfect example. People should hate the Monforts for what they've done here. They got rid of the best player in franchise history while they opened up. I've been spending quite a bit of time at McGregor Square here the last couple of weeks. It's a cash cow. They're printing money there. The hotel, if you want to stay at the hotel outside of Rockies Park, you're paying at least $300 a night, normally $350 to $400 a night to stay in a hotel in downtown Denver. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. And this comes right as they get rid of their best player and they get the all-star game. So I think having a commissioner that a lot of casual fans even go, oh, fuck that guy, or we hate that guy, that's good for the owners and the league's making money and that's what he's there for. But it's something we will kind of see where this goes one how are players going to respond to it and what role will this play going into what is going to be a difficult battle between the owners and the players this offseason and it's going to be a storyline that's going to dominate the offseason unfortunately like we yeah, should be celebrating ballparks are open again the united states is open again we're getting back at it and there's this kind of dark cloud hanging over the sport so that's something we don't like and and yeah jeremy you have a closing thought on that well, no, just saying what you're saying. Hopefully that the they won't have too acrimonious of a uh, negotiation because the CBA is coming up. So we'll see. Last time the players union got, I mean, the last two times players union basically got worked, and they and all you know for for not having an acrimonious agreement. Uh, excuse me, negotiation. They agreed right away, pretty much. So we'll see how it goes. But uh, hopefully, I, I agree. I don't want a black eye over this whole off season. Yeah. Well, we got a lot more to talk about here. We got some trivia coming up too. We got a box score, some Cubs killers, um, but we got a request from a fan of the show 
a listener from day one, our guy Stan Miller, he wanted us to talk about run differential in Major League Baseball. So we'll take a couple minutes here. And uh, as we get into that, a reminder, if you ever want to hear us talk about anything, it could be baseball related. Folks, it could be Randall related. Give us the topics you want to hear about. You can find us on Twitter at BTYL Podcast. Let us know what you want to hear. Some trivia, Cubs killers, Randall killers. We can get into all of that good stuff. Um, But he wanted us to talk about run differential. And that's basically over the course of a season, however far into the season you are, the difference between run scored and run allowed for your squad. And naturally, teams that score more runs than they prevent are teams that are going to end up towards the top of the standings. And we do see that. And a quick look here at the national league. Um, if you thought about the national league, you'd think, okay, the really good teams are in the national league West. And that is what we're seeing with run differential. Number one right now is the second place team in the West, the Los Angeles Dodgers. They've got 93 more runs scored than runs allowed. In fact, the top three teams are in the national league West, the first place giants second with 86 and the third place Padres third with plus 61. Um, Other than that, Cubs next in line in the National League, plus 38. You've got two teams in the East, the first place Mets at plus Randall J. Sanders, that's plus 22. And the last place Marlins, that's interesting, at plus one. Looking at the rest of the National League Central, Marlins, uh, I'm sorry, the Brewers, and this does not include tonight where they're losing seven to nothing. Right now, their run differential is nothing, zero. Same thing for Cincinnati. The Cardinals minus 31, the Pirates are terrible, minus 100. So a quick look kind of at the numbers here in the National League. Yeah, you expected the Dodgers and the Padres to be among the front runners. What number in there is maybe the most surprising to you? at this time in the year, Jeremy, or what team maybe is, are you surprised by their run differential right now in the NL? I think I'm a little surprised. Well, the Marlins, obviously, you know, you mentioned being above uh, and we get the Marlins this weekend. So that that's an interesting fact. I think I'm a little surprised at some of the teams in the NL central at the Cubs only being the only team above 500 or excuse me, above uh, a zero run different uh, run differential. And actually by a pretty good margin, 38, it's not like kind of a cheapy, you know, whatever one or two, but, uh, you know, you look at the NL West, and so one of the run differential, obviously, uh, at, at its most basic, you know, as you mentioned, the good teams score lots of runs and don't give up lots of runs. So at its most basic, your records generally follow that. Now, there are some other, you know, issues with that. Obviously, you can get into the schedule, who teams play. Uh, you look at the NL West, they're, that's, they're, you have three really good teams there, and there are two really bad teams in there so those teams get to face those those three really good teams get to face those really bad teams a lot so i think generally that's probably going to drive the run differential up a little bit for those teams teams like that um you know there's some other you know baseball prospectus used to have because you get to run differential you start to get into like uh, bill james put out pythagorean run theorem where you could estimate a team's wins losses versus based on how many runs they've scored, the run differential versus what their current wins are. But baseball professors, they used to have a like, first order wins, second order wins, and third order wins, which would start to get to more underlying factors of the run differential and not just the runs itself and say, well, how is a team really playing or how factoring in maybe who they're playing as well? And then how many runs should they have scored? How many runs did they score? So you can really get into the weeds on it a little bit, whereas the runs are obviously just the runs they score. And generally that's, you know, an easy way to think of it. Just the runs they scored and the runs first, the runs they didn't score. And, and they, it works pretty well. So, but I just wanted to get in a little bit of that. And I, I, I say, I'm surprised that the Cubs are the only team above five. And as you said, the Brewers can work right now, seven, nothing. So it, it seems like it'll stand that way today. Yeah. 
what it what it illustrates to me, because you know, I, I tend to look at things through the lens of the Cubs, is you know, the Cubs are right now they are a good team. This this is a team you could count on for the most part to go out there and be at least competitive against most teams and they have been so far the the difference between the cubs run differential which again the only positive run differential in the division at plus 38 they have a run differential that is 40 yeah 40 to six i'm sorry 50 to 60 runs lower than some of these great teams in the national league west it illustrates to me that as good as this cubs team are is they have a ways to go before if at any point this season, they're going to really be on the same level as some of the best teams in the national league. And what surprises me a little bit is that the Marlins have a positive run differential and, you know, plus two that can change on a dime, but I think that shows you how good their starting pitching has been this year. I don't think anybody had a whole lot of expectation for the Marlins, but they're throwing guys like Trevor Rogers, Pablo Lopez and Sandy Alcantara out there. And that rotation is for the most part, holding their own as much as it pains me to say, because we all know my thoughts on the Marlins. Uh, so that surprised me a little bit. I actually hadn't looked at the run differential until uh, of course, you brought it up a moment ago in response to the request from our friend Stan. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's an interesting stat. And a lot of the time it tells you whether a team is really overachieving or underachieving. If you have a team with a, just an awful run differential, but somehow they are treading water or above, it tells you that they are probably more smoke and mirrors than they are ability. So I think like a lot of stats, if you take it in the proper context, it can be very illuminating uh, about a team beyond simply their win-loss record. I just I'm a little surprised, Randall, that you are not a fan of Sandy Alcantara uh, pitching pretty well for the Marlins when he's a guy that the uh, Cardinals gave up on and traded him for Marcel Zuna. I thought and he basically almost dominated the Cardinals last night, pitching into the ninth and he he gave up one run in the ninth inning. I thought you'd be happy to see the Cardinals being because a lot of Cardinals people I talk to, they are very mad right now about all the talent they've given up in all these trades and Alcantara being one of them. Well, as much as I'm for mad Cardinals fans, they also gave him to the Marlins, and I, I just can't ever really forgive and the Marlins. they did beat the Cubs last year, Alcantara I, and Pablo Okay, Lopez. precisely my point. I can't ever really forgive the Marlins for what they've done to me in their time. Uh, well, I can't forgive or forget. A little teaser in there, too. We're going to hear more about the Marlins in our trivia section before the Ooh. end of today's show. So little thing coming up there. I just want to bring this run differential to a close. Quick look at the American League compelling series right now two of the oldest managers in baseball two of the all-time winningest managers in baseball history big time rivals too it's a good point jeremy dusty baker now with the houston astros taking on uh tony randall's guy in the white Sox. it was a big time win for the astros tonight 10 to 2 over the white Sox, and that game propelled the astros to the number one spot in run differential in the american league they're at plus 101 the white Sox right behind them at plus 99 and then the leaders in the american league east tampa bay at plus 83 um so the first place team's doing work. Uh, the Astros technically in second place right now, but they're closing in on Oakland in the West, but the teams that we expected to be competing here doing that. I think something that I just wanted to throw out though, that is interesting about run differential right now. And Jeremy, you alluded to this, looking at the West, the dichotomy in the league right now between the good teams and the bad teams is very extreme. So you get the Tampa Bay playing Baltimore or Chicago playing the Detroit's out there. And yeah, that house going to prop up the run differential for the teams at the top. Meanwhile, burying the teams on the back end of it. So I think that's part of it right now. There are not enough 
competitive teams in baseball right now. That's something I hope will be addressed in the next CBA. I don't know that the owners care about that as much as I do, but that's a problem right now because there are some very, very good teams. Look at, let's say, the Dodgers in the West. Yeah, and then Arizona, maybe the worst team in baseball. They play each other 20 times a year. That's not really good for competitive balance in the sport. Yeah, I, I will, I'm very interested in what's going on out there in Arizona because I don't understand at all. They were, they actually, they were a team that you thought were kind of trying to try at the beginning of this season, but then you lose 23 games in a row. Like, what are we doing out there? Like, the, there are some teams that are really bad right now, and you know, unfortunately, it seems like the Brewers are playing every single one of them. Uh, but hey, I know that they just cleared the bases a little bit against the uh, the Rockies, but they're still down a pretty good amount late in the game. So hopefully, Rockies hold on tonight. Arizona, 30 games under 500. They are 20 and 50. The Desert Snakes doing 1997 Cubs things. 14 consecutive losses here as uh, their run differential at minus 97. But thank you, Stan. Appreciate you reaching out. We like hearing from you. We um, do also appreciate you listening. You've been with us since day one. So thank you for that. And again, folks, if you've got thoughts, things you want us to talk about, at BTYL podcast is where you can find us on Twitter. And if you're out there, give us a subscribe on what uh, iTunes, Apple music, Spotify, give us a review, a five-star review on Apple uh, podcast. We've that gotten a few great. so far. Leave us a, leave us a note. Yeah. Stan, one of them too. We were able yeah. to see that. So again, we appreciate that. All right. Um, we want to talk Marlins. We want to talk uh, the Indian series coming up here. Then trivia box score Cubs killer. So a lot to get through here. Uh, all right, Randall Cubs are coming home. They're in first place. They'll probably be in sole possession of first place. It's your least favorite team in the East. The Marlins coming in for three. Davies, Arietta Mills. More what than do we got Mets? this weekend at Wrigley? Is it is it more than the Mets, your least favorite team? Yeah, the Marlins, the, what the Marlins did to me in 2003, I, I think they hold that title. You know, the Mets. Mets, the Mets in 2015. I, I know. And, and again, Ron Santo taught me never, never give the Mets an inch but it, it's probably still the Marlins, but like the swallows returning to Capistrano, the Marlins do swim back into Wrigley as they have uh, every year, except for last year. And as usual, we have the weather forecast for this homestand courtesy of our good friend, Alexander Hall, whom you can find on Twitter at Alexander Hall and at Cubs weather at Cubs weather, a wonderful resource. If you are heading out to see the Cubs, no matter where they play Wrigley or on the road. And so with Miami coming in this weekend, Alexander describes the series vibe as warm night game with a pair of hot day games. There might be some severe weather in the area this weekend, south of I-80, but it should be playable summer weather for the most part in the city of Chicago. For tomorrow night's rare night game at Wrigley Field, uh, temperatures will be in the upper 70s with an outside shot at a shower or a thunderstorm. The winds will be light and variable and gently in from right field occasionally. And fortunately for people who will be out at the game, it will become slightly less oppressively humid because there's nothing worse than humidity. For Saturday's day game, it will be very warm, especially if you are sitting in the sun. Wear sunscreen this time of year. It's very important you do so. It will be less humid temperatures in the mid to upper 80s. There will be a light and, as Alexander describes it, sort of unhelpful lake breeze, potentially winds otherwise light and variable, and the sun will be bright and unrelenting. For the conclusion of the series, Sunday at 120, it's going to be hot, upper 80s to 90 degrees, increasingly humid with a chance for a thunderstorm, and the wind will be blowing out to left field and center field at 5 to 15 miles per hour. But when the Marlins leave and Cleveland comes in, the vibe is going to change completely. 
two dazzling night games on tap in that series. Southern California-esque drier air and very comfortable temperatures moving in as a cooler air mass takes hold over the Midwest, which should be here for the next week to 10 days or so. Great news for me because, again, I hate humidity. Uh, for both the Monday and the Tuesday night games, you can expect temperatures uh, in the mid-60s, clear skies, comfortable humidities, and a very light breeze to the right side. So both of the Cleveland games sound like great games to go to if you've got the inclination and the means to show up at Wrigley on this homestand. So thank you, as always, to Alexander, whom, again, you can find on Twitter, at Alexander Hall and at Cubs Weather. If you are ever curious whether they are going to play tonight and what the conditions will be, find at Cubs Weather on Twitter and you'll find everything you need. And some great photos this week from uh, City Field. They were out there. Alexander was out there for, I think, a couple of the games, but he had a wonderful sunset shot. I think that was Wednesday evening. Um, very, very cool. And that's a ballpark. Haven't been out there. Um, I definitely want to. I got to old Yankee Stadium, haven't been to the new one, haven't been to either of the Mets parks that have been around since I've been a fan, but I would like to get out to city and see it. It's New York's an amazing place. So it'll be cool to get out there. Uh, Jeremy, our annual road trip. We got to get to New York here in the next couple of years. Definitely. I'm, I'm right with you. I've only ever been to old Yankee and I went there when I was like six years old. And I've never been to either of the Mets ballparks, never been to new Yankee, so I definitely got to get out there. And he had some very nice pictures, uh, seeing them on Twitter. I think he was like at like every day, uh, every game, so uh, it was pretty cool. And I'll be out yeah. there Saturday, and I do not appreciate this forecast of just the sun just beating down on you because I'll be in the bleachers. Ooh, Jeremy, that sounds like a, a difficult proposition, so I, I wish you luck with that. Uh, Alexander and his wife, uh, in fact, live in New York, so they were in good position to uh, head out to City Field and see the Cubs as they visited this week. That's awesome. I hope they had a good time, even though the games didn't turn out the way that they wanted. Um, we've got some fun uh, project in the works here with Alexander as well. We're looking forward to unveiling with you all soon in the next couple of weeks. We're going to kind of spruce up the show. You, you know, uh, Jeremy, you had that nice collared shirt on last week. Randall so often is looking nice. We're going to do something to make the show. Our friend look. Brian knows a lot about spruce as well. Oh, yes. Now, now I got to ask you, too, um, before we get into trivia here. You were out there Sunday night. It appeared to be a rowdy environment at Wrigley Field. Did you get caught up in the snake? Were you caught in the snake? We were caught in a snake. Um, okay. So, you know, obviously the major snake, that one I, I assume they showed the most on the broadcast, the biggest one was in center field. That one was gigantic. But there were some pretty big snakes going on. We were in right field. I believe there was one left field. There was a, one in right field, and it passed over us a little bit. I, me and Ryan were both like, okay, move this over our head because we didn't want to be involved in holding it up because I, I think there was one girl who got stuck like holding it up for like 20 minutes and then the whole Oof. thing broke and she was like, I'm out. I'm not doing this again. Threw the rest of the cups down. But I would say Sunday night, that was a rowdy, rowdy environment. One of the more rowdy environments I've been to. Not unexpected. So it was a fun game. Cubs win. Anytime Cubs win, you got to take it. It was hot early, but it cooled down pretty well late. And so, you know, I got stronger as the game went on. Yeah, I kept I kept expecting to see the cup snakes uh, move towards one another and eventually end up clashing. Clash of Titans. That did not hey, Crane happen. Said, Crane said they're letting them do it now. So, yeah, you know, that. you know, I'm uh, everything in moderation. I thought it was pretty funny Sunday night watching them, the cup snakes grow and grow and grow and Vasquez and an A-Rod just become more and more befuddled, which they do anyway. But I guess, especially when there are cup snakes involved, I thought it was pretty funny. It, it was fun. And it just highlights the fact people are ready to be back out in the world. And um, it's so fun to see it. People out having a good time being in a full ballpark 
30,000, 40,000 people. It's an amazing thing to share. And it's something that we get to do a lot of at Wrigley Field. And for me here, of course, all the time, um, got a chance to see you Darvish earlier this week. That was really cool. And it's just nice to be back out amongst each other. So it's fun. I know I'm looking ahead, trying to get back to Wrigley a little bit later this year. I want to be out there amidst the chaos again, one more time this season and concerts and everything else that's coming. So lots, lots of good stuff there. Um, we got to get a got... game out in the bleachers, all three of us. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, Randall and I, uh, it, it's a, one of the great pleasures attending a major league baseball game with Randall J. Sanders. It's truly something I wish that all of our listeners could experience and Cubs are playing well right now collectively. Yeah. It's been a rough trip to New York, but overall it's been a very good stretch for this team. So you get a jovial Randall J. Sanders at Wrigley field, not a cranky Randall J. Sanders. Cranky I mean, Randall I mean, J. I mean, Sanders. I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never been cranky at Wrigley in my life. Uh, keep in mind, any of our listeners are more than welcome to uh, experience a Cubs game with me. All it'll cost you is the price of one ticket and a couple hot dogs. Uh, right. pay, payable by Venmo, yeah. PayPal, cash, check, or major credit card. I'm well, surprised you won't just take the ticket. You need the hot dogs as well. You know, You know, everyone's got their overhead. Well, I got some trivia for you guys. It's been a couple weeks since we've done that. We want to do some trivia. We'll do a quick old box score, and then we'll end with some Cubs killers. Uh, And on a lighter note here, as the Cubs come home, trying to get some good energy around this team, I have got three trivia questions for you. One of them uh, pertains to a current player on the team. One of them pertains to the Mets, Cubs. The other one, as I mentioned to earlier, pertains to the Cubs and the Marlins. So that's the ballpark that we're going to be in here for our three questions. First one, a uh, hat tip to Connor O'Shea for bringing this to our attention. Big fan of the pod. He was our first guest back. One of those first episodes back during spring training. He brought this to my attention, uh, ties back to my dad as well. So I thought it was uh, a great question. And um, two Chicago Cubs have hit nine or more home runs in their first 20 games in Cubs history. Our guy right now, Patrick Wisdom, and who? And this goes back in, back in time a bit. Well, if we're going to go back in time a bit, um, and time, I'm going to guess one is, I'll guess one is like your dad's guy, Hank Sauer. And I'm going to guess my other one, I'm going to guess it's going to be like Jorge Soler. Okay, very interesting. Randall, who do you got here? And it is Chicago Cubs who have hit nine or more home runs in their first 20 games in Cubs history. Well, Ronan, I, I believe I've cheated on this because I recall these graphics from the broadcast the last couple of weeks as Patrick Wisdom has done what he's done. So I am going to go ahead and answer. I believe Shane Matthews is a name I saw come up Ooh. in those graphics as Patrick Wisdom has been on his uh, his power jag recently. Okay, well, you know, I thought I gave it away. I meant to do the hat tip after I asked the question, but it came out. I was ready to jump the gun on it. So, Jeremy, you're right here. Hank Sauer, 1949, nine-plus home runs in his first 20 games as a Cub. Patrick Wisdom doing it here in 2021. So that's pretty cool. All right, second question here, and I want to start with you, Jeremy, Oh, I thought we were guessing two. Never mind. That's why I was guessing two. It was just nice to get that second name, though. I was hoping to get, you know, know, more. Hank Sauer was my guess. Um, the second one I uh, actually picked up tonight, so I'm a little worried maybe Randall caught this one. But, Jeremy, I wanted to ask you, Cubs and Mets have been playing each other since 1962. Who leads the head-to-head all-time record between the Cubs and the Mets? Huh. I'm going to guess the Mets do. I'll, just the Mets. Ballpark, maybe how many games would separate it? You between don't have to the guess the wins, just like, yeah, how many you know, games separate them? 
Exactly. I'll say the Mets lead by like 10 games. Okay. Randall, did you catch this one? I know you had the radio not. on. Okay, I did not. Good. Uh, so I'm going to guess that the long, the, the season, this longtime series against these two teams, I'm going to guess it's even. I'm going to guess it's at 500. Okay. Very good guesses. It is the Cubs. And with today's 2 nothing victory, Cubs by 23. So 23 more oh. wins the Cubs have over the Mets. And I thought on about our 23rd Ron Santo. Podcast. Exactly. Exactly. And I thought about Ron Santo. He hated the Mets and uh, he would have been satisfied certainly with the ball game here today. Yeah. Yes, uh, Randall. Very indicative of that where the, the Cubs are 23 games over 500 against the Mets in the, the historical series. But between 1969 and 2015, the Cubs have never quite been able to get it done against the Mets when it really counted. So the, the, that being the, the historical record between those two teams, that's, uh, that's very fitting. And one thing as we move on from this, Ronan, you mentioned Ron Santo uh, hated the Mets. That's where I learned to hate the Mets because otherwise, you know, I don't have any real strong thoughts about them. One of the great Ron Santo moments, which I remember from one of the CDs they put out, was uh, a college student who emailed into Pat and Ron from his dorm room uh, listening on the internet. And he asked Ron Santo to explain to his Mets fan girlfriend why Cubs fans hate the Mets so much. And Santo, in that growl of his, all he replied was, dump her, dump <laughs> her, get rid of her. That's all I have to say. And Pat Hughes, ever the straight man, he asks him, would you like to elaborate on that? No. Randall. One of the, one of the great Pat and Ron moments. You don't hate the Mets from the movie uh, Rookie of the Year? Uh, no, I don't hate the Mets from the movie Rookie of the Year. I, I don't. Well, I the don't Mets have were the bad that. guys, and the Cubs were the good guys. I understand that, and the you know the Yankees were the bad guys in Major League, but that's just a movie, Jeremy. It didn't actually happen. Well, yeah, but the Major League didn't have to do with the Cubs. <laughs> True. Well, well, here's one that did happen, and here's a team that Randall does hate for our third and final trivia question. Uh, 2003 National League Championship Series. It started way better than it ended. My question to you both, and Randall, I want you to try first here. Can you name the three winning pitchers for the Cubs in the 2003 NLCS? I know it was not Carlos Zambrano because he lost what would have been the, the, the clinching game <laughs> of the season or of the series in Miami. So it was not Carlos Zambrano. I am going to guess Mark Pryor. I am going to guess Matt Clement. And I am going to guess... Now, see, this is difficult because I know a lot of these games, a lot of the games, so I'm probably wrong because a lot of the games the Cubs won in that series were decided late in the game. So it probably wasn't starting pitchers. So I'm going to go with some guys who know who were in the bullpen for the Cubs that season. I'm going to guess uh, Dave, Dave Veers. I'm going to guess it was, I know they had a Guthrie, Mark Guthrie. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to throw out, one more guess in there just because I know he was on the team, Joe Borowski. So those are my guesses for the winning pitchers. Jeremy, like six won, guesses for three pitchers. Who won the three NLCS games for the Cubs? Winning okay. pitchers. So my guess is, let me think. Game two was a blowout, a laugher. So I'm trying to think who started game two. Did, if it was either Wood or Pryor, um, well, Pryor or Wood started game five in Atlanta. So I'm guessing he didn't start game one in, which probably was prior. Prior start game six and would start game seven. So I'm going to say would start game two. So I'm going to guess game two was would, and they won that. Um, game three, one of those games, there was a late game where they had the multiple triples. Uh, I'm trying to think. So I'm going to guess 
I'm going to guess Woodwell got one. I'm going to guess, I'm going to go with Randall's guess of Matt Clement. I'm going to say he got one. And then I'm going to go with a bullpen guy. And for my bullpen guy, I'm going to guess off the top of my head. Uh, I'm going to agree with Randall. I'm going to say Joe Borowski got one late. Well, you guys split the difference here. Collectively, you brought it home. Uh, game two, it was Mark Pryor, starting oh, pitcher Pryor. that game. So okay. Mark Pryor takes game two. Game three, Joe Borowski, the right-hander. And then game four, Matt Clement with the win. So Pryor, Borowski, Clement, your winning pitchers. The series didn't end well, 2003 NLCS. Uh, but I got to ask you guys, Favorite Cubs-Marlins memories? It could be a single game. It could be a funny moment. What, when you think of Cubs-Marlins, what good memories do you have? I've got a couple. I think, I guess I'll start here, if you, you guys are fine with that. Chris Bryant, the Grand Slam, July 4, 2015, at a rowdy Wrigley Field on uh, Independence Day. Uh, Jeremy, you and I, we've mentioned this game a couple of times now, September 11. 2004 when Latroy struck out the Marlins on nine pitches to close that ball game. We were, we were also were, at the Independence Day game together as well. We were at both of those games. Exactly. So those yeah. two came to mind for me. What else stands out? Any positive memories, Cubs Marlins, Randall? Ronan, I was at that 4th of July game in 2015. I was real excited to see fireworks at Wrigley and I did. Uh, two things that stand out to me, the Cubs swept the Marlins at Wrigley in 2016. They won the final game of that series on a, a blown save and a walk-off. They got whatever nameless relief pitcher was pitching for the Marlins that day. I remember uh, Matt Caesar scampering home on a game-winning wild pitch on a pitch that was way outside. And also uh, Sammy's game-tying home run in game one of the 2003 NLCS. Mm -hmm. the, the home run absolutely tattooed, absolutely launched. Memories of the, the chain-link fences beyond the bleachers at Wrigley and the ball sailing towards that, even though they lost that game and that series, uh, <laughs> which again, story, story of that series, even though they lost, that's a fantastic memory. Sammy yeah. Sosa, one of the most prolific hitters in team history, going out there and hitting a, a game tying moonshot in game one of the NLCS. Yeah. I'm trying to think of some memories. I, I'm not exactly sure if this was against the Marlins, but did I, I feel like, I remember in Daryl Ward hit a monster homer late in the game. Was that against? Was that? Was that? I feel like that was either in Houston or Miami. Was that? No, Daryl Ward did do that. That was in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. Daryl Ward did do that. That was yeah. in Miami. Okay. Uh, that was in 2008 because I know Kerry Wood closed out that game. Yeah. And that was a, a top of the ninth inning, one of those great late inning road comebacks. And you were right. He hit uh, another long home run. One of those home run calls where Pat Hughes slows down and tells you just how far it went. And you can tell that it's gone by the cadence of his voice. So you are correct, Jeremy. 2008, yeah. Daryl Ward in Miami at the old pro player, Joe Robbie Landshark ballpark venue of Miami, Dade County, Florida. Right. Um, yeah, because I just remember it was in the right field and the way the right field shoots out like that. It's kind of similar in my mind to the way Houston does as well. So I couldn't quite remember if it was either, but I felt like it was in Miami. Uh, another one I, I kind of want to say, that's not really uh, on the field, but I feel like Randall will appreciate this one. I got to give it up for Chris Bryant going with the tummy tickle on Starling Castro <laughs> as a uh, Cubs Marlins memory. Well, sure. Jeremy, that, that, that's pretty funny. Yeah. It better, better that than, uh, it better, better cleared. that than actually getting into a, a, an altercation on the field. Yeah. Chris Bryant, uh, having some fun with one of his old teammates. 
Yeah. Randall, too, you mentioned a minute ago the come from behind road victory and how satisfying that is. That that's kind of top of the list as a fan who enjoys going on the road to cheer for the Cubs. I like going to road cities, seeing their ballparks, seeing their city, get whatever food they make in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or New York. You know, you go to the city, you enjoy it, you go see your team. It's fun because, you know, your team falls behind early. Maybe the opposing fans are giving you a hard time. And then you get the last laugh when the Cubs do something big late. and You stay, you're in your seat, you're paying attention. Very satisfying in terms of fandom, I think. I was very worried about that happening on Sunday because – uh, there were these Cubs fans giving it to these Cardinals fan in front of me when Cribro was pitching in the ninth. And then, you know, he walked a batter and I'm like, it's a two nothing game. I'm like, if this guy, if the Cardinals go off right here, this guy is going to give everything in the world to everybody around him. And I really don't want that to happen. So stop heckling this guy. Cause I'm trying to get the camera bars. Good. Me and Ryan were thinking on the same page just so that this guy doesn't own us. <laughs> totally. And Jeremy, your, your Daryl Ward game from memory that comes it was up like in August. 2008, August 15, 2008. That memory like a steel trap of yours comes through again. Daryl Ward with a pinch hit, go ahead, three run homer to give the Cubs a one run lead, scoring Mark DeRosa and Reed Johnson, two very 2008 names. Kerry Wood would close that game out on a ground out, a walk, a strikeout, a wild pitch, a hit by pitch, and then finally striking out Alfredo Amezaga to end that ball game. And of course, Daryl Ward hit that home run off of future former Cub legend, Kevin Gregg. Yeah, Kevin I remember Gregg. it. Wow. I remember it because uh, I, I feel like that was the day, like the first, the day I moved into my senior year at Champaign. It was like August, it was mid August. And I think I was watching that game in legends in uh, at, uh, so I, I really recall the home run watching no it camps. at legends. No cams. Uh, not the best <laughs> place to get a fish sandwich on a Friday. You got to go to legend. I don't know. I don't know if it was Friday, but that's what legends is known for. That's good stuff. Um, and we're, hey, we're not done yet. We got a couple more segments on this marathon edition of Behind the Yellow Line, uh, number 23. So again, Ryan Sandberg, somebody that we're thinking about right now. Randall, something you haven't done in a long time. Dig up an old box score from a game that at least some of us attended. So give us some clues to the game. Jeremy and I will do our best to guess it, and then we'll bring things home with a quick round of Cubs killers. Well, Ronan, I reached into the box and what I pulled out could be anything. It could even be a box and it is, it is a box score. And so I will start this particular segment by telling you that Mark DeRosa played in this particular Cubs game. That probably does not narrow it down or maybe it does. Mark DeRosa played in this particular Cubs game. Leading off for the Cubs in this game was David DeJesus. So that probably narrows it down a little bit. I will give you the starting pitcher for the Cubs. And that is Ryan Dempster. Do we have any guesses as to who the opponent might have been and what year this was just yet? I'm going to guess the, the Cardinals. You are incorrect. It was not the Cardinals. I'll give you a couple of other names to have played in this game. Alfonso Soriano was in this game for the Cubs. So was Starlin Castro. Starling. And these, so was Giovanni Soto. And here are the, some names that are probably going to start giving it away. Elsewhere in this game for the Cubs was uh, an all-time trade acquisition. Ian Stewart. Oh, man. Played in this game for the Cubs. Uh, Kerry Wood and Carlos Marmol pitched in this game for the Cubs. Do we have any guesses I, just yet? 2012. I was going to say 12. You've got the year yeah. correct. You do have the year correct. So, do we have any the, guesses as to the opponent? Was it the Indians? It was not the Indians. The National, national League team? It is a National League team. DeRosa, I, I'm thinking of playing for the... Cardinals Atlanta 
Not the Braves. You're in the right division. You're in the right division, though. The Nationals? Was it the Nationals? The Nationals were the opponent. And in fact, this was opening day of the year 2012. Oh, my God. Another difficult season. The Cubs would lose this game by a score of 2-1. to Sadly, Kerry Wood in his uh, second tour of duty with the team, pitching in relief, he would be credited with a blown save in this one, walking three batters in uh, a third of an inning. And Carlos Marmol sadly credited with the loss, allowing uh, allowing the losing run, getting the loss. It was Cubs Nationals opening day, in fact, of 2012. I'll give you some of the other names to have played for the Cubs in this game. Blake DeWitt got a pinch hit appearance. Darwin Barney was your second baseman. Joe Jeff Baker playing first base, because again, this was before this was br this was before rizzo before rizzo's debut as a chicago cub so first base with Derek lee gone was still a bit of a uh, a revolving door marlon bird was your center fielder all in all obviously not a great lineup not a good team an awful season but this is a game that not only did the three of us attend together because for some reason the two of you took a video of yourselves after the game and then sent it to me or i may even have <laughs> taken the video and that you send it to me anyway who knows what was happening uh, on the video the two of you jabbering at each other. What else? Jabbering. Yes. And something now something Are we jabbering you, about Randall. You were, in fact, you, your video goes, uh, this goes out to Randall J. Sanders and you can't hear me saying I'm right here, but you can hear me thinking it in the video. Uh, although something good that did come out of this game. If you do look at our Twitter account at BTYL podcast, it is from this game that I actually pulled our header photo. And also the art that we post with uh, a new edition of our podcast every week, because of course we were standing in standing room behind the yellow line in section 224 for this game. And so it is from this game that I pulled the photo that we use for a lot of our cover art. That's really interesting that you say that Randall, because I was trying to, I'm trying to remember this game and I have memories. Those are kind of the dark years in between. They really, really blur together. Like this is, I, some some photos of the wrap around Wrigley. Matt Garza had his picture plastered on the tarps covering the outside of the ballpark. Marlon Bird, manager Dale Swaim. There, there's not a whole lot to remember Bunting about these years. Contest Dale Swaim. Bunting yeah. contest Dale Swaim. And I agree, Ronan. They do just all blur together. Like that horrible game you remember. Was it from 10? Was it from 11, 12, 13? It's not until 2014 that the memories start to crystallize a yeah. little more. So I agree. They all kind of melt together. Well, there was an opening day in there, and this is what I thought it was, but if we were in standing room, then it's not the game, where we got down there, we had every intention of standing behind the yellow line. Like, that was the plan. They were relatively cheaper tickets, too. The problem was it was during those dark years, they didn't sell out opening day. We ended up down the left field line in the lower deck, like sort of in the corner of the ballpark, almost I wanna, even with the bleachers. Was that maybe the following year? I know it I was in that. I think that was me and you, and I want to say that was against the Phillies. And you were like living in normal at the time, I think. And you like last well, I was second getting drove ready up. for grad school. Yeah. You like last second drove up mm-hmm. and we went to the game. I think that's how it was. And I because I think it was when San- Sandberg was managing the Phillies. Because I remember I was we were down right. the left field line. You're totally right. We were down the left field line and it was the Phillies. And that game was not sold out. And they I, the Cubs lost that game as well. So that whatever whatever year they opening day against the Phillies. Like yeah. 20, I bet it was 13, 14. maybe yeah. 14. Yeah. But interesting. Um and, but we were behind the yellow line. So good stuff there, Randall. Mm-hmm. A fun old box score. And uh, Randall, we wanted to end here with some Cubs killers. And this is where we all throw out a name of a player who we feel like they, in their career, they were Cubs killers. And Randall's pulled up the numbers and he'll confirm it, deny it, 
give us some clarity. Uh, I wrote a name down. Jeremy wrote a name down. Randall put the mix mystery box. So why don't you go first for us here? You did not add your name. So what player are you leading off with? You know, I have a little bit of trouble finding a cub killer. I was going through some names here and I was actually coming up with not much. Like I feel like this guy's tortured the Cubs. He didn't I feel like that guy's tortured the Cubs. He didn't. I went through Matt Carpenter. I went through Jose Peraza. I went through a lot of names from the recent Cubs and Car or the recent Cardinals and Mets series. I might've gone with Goldschmidt, but that of course is coming up. So, you know, I, I am this in particular I am bereft of a cub killer. There is simply nobody who has come to mind, nobody who has vexed me recently, whose numbers I A, wanted to look up, and B, uh, uh, verified my existing bias. So I am taking a mulligan on the cub killer it's this time. Unacceptable. It, it is I, unacceptable. I, no, I agree. I'll pinch it for I, you. I'm, I'll give you a name in a minute. I'm I'll stunned that Rand there's not somebody that Randall hates enough to have, as, right. that was a cub killer. You know, I, I probably, you know, I should probably look up somebody from this Marlin series. So after I read your two names, you guys will give me a second to go look up those numbers and I'll get them. But we will start with the name provided to me by one Ronan O'Shea right here in this podcast. And that is Orlando Merced, a former major leaguer, spent a number of years with the Pirates. He actually ended his career with the Houston Astros after a few seasons with the Cubs. So Orlando Merced, the name given to me by Ronan, for his career, he uh, batted 277. He got on base at 355 for his career, not bad at all. He slugged 426 average, and that, of course, adds up to an OPS of 781. His career numbers against the Cubs actually come in below those averages on all four counts. He only wow. batted 260 against the Cubs in 121 games. Again, he was a, a division opponent for quite a while. Uh, he only got on base at a 333 clip, and he only slugged 408 in those uh, games against the Cubs. He only hit 12 home runs. He drove in 72. He hit 15 doubles. So maybe the power numbers were there against the Cubs. But he, for his career, he, and for his career against the Cubs, he came in below his averages, which is surprising to me and probably surprising to you too, because I imagine he came to mind with you uh, because you felt like he had tortured the Cubs for his career and the numbers don't quite bear that out. I am surprised by that. And, you know, a couple thoughts on Orlando Merced. One, he was a Cub on one of my favorite teams of all time, 1998, when they won the wild card and Sammy did his thing. The reason why Orlando Merced sticks out to me, though, and I think this is something that maybe a younger generation of listeners, if anybody's still around at this point, will understand. Like, I grew up as a baseball fan, Cubs were on WGN, still a lot of day games, but I also grew up a baseball fan in a video game era where I had Nintendo as a kid. I ended up getting to PlayStation, Nintendo 64, things like that. So I played a lot of baseball games over those years. Triple Play 98, Triple Play 2000 with Sammy on the cover. Those are two iconic games for me. Uh, Microsoft Baseball, 2000 and 2001. Two games that absolutely impacted my fandom. Uh, All-Star Baseball, when that was a thing. MVP Baseball, now the show in the last decade or so. But Orlando Merced was a guy. When I was playing... All-Star Baseball, like 2002 or 2003, he was just one of those guys who crushed me, right? And he was always on, like, division opponents, whether it was Houston or something like that. He was always popping up. Uh, another guy that stands out in that realm, Randy Wolf mm. of the Phillies, who had a nasty uh, curveball. 
Microsoft Baseball 2001, there was a Cubs-Phillies night game that would pop up every June or July. It was always Randy Wolf, and he always dominated. Eight shutout innings, nine shutout innings. I crushed that game. I could never hit Randy Wolf. So that's a name that also kind of stands out. I mean, maybe one we'll bring up in the future. But Jeremy, I know you're a big sports video game guy. It certainly impacted our fandom one way or another, playing those games. And it's a way to connect with baseball, even when there's no game on TV or you're in the middle of winter. Definitely, definitely. I remember uh, one game, uh, must have been like MVP 2005 or something, but I remember there, Roy Halladay had a palm ball, and that was a pitch I could never hit. <laughs> Whenever he threw that pitch, I could never hit it. Roy, and I would think like the palm ball has to be the greatest pitch in history because I could never, it's like nobody throws a palm ball, but I could never hit it, and Roy Halladay had it. So, yeah, you know, it's a couple of those games. All-Star Baseball, I, I remember that vividly. That's a... Uh, a great game, but uh, actually, totally. actually, just a little bit of an update uh, for us scoreboard watchers out here. The Padres went into the ninth inning with a two nothing lead against the Reds. The Reds scored four. Wow! The top of the ninth, and in the bottom of the ninth, Eric Hosmer just hit a two run homer to tie that game up. So we got four four in the bottom of the ninth. That is Pod- wild. Let those Padres two teams Reds beat up fans. on each other. Well, I'm I'm hoping for the Padres to take it to the Reds. The Reds only two back right now. So Any Dinger uh, update tonight. Uh, it's seven to three still out there in Colorado uh, in the eighth inning bottom. All right. Well, thank you, Randall too. Orlando Merced, even though he crushed me back in PlayStation two, not so much a cub killer. Uh, Jeremy, you've got a current player that you thought yes. would be a good fit. Just feels like no matter what I remember, I feel like there was a game we went to uh, where we all were together at uh landmark. I feel like or the Cubs playing out in Arizona just felt like, you know, anytime Paul Goldschmidt came up in a big spot, that man was always kicking the ball, crushing the ball, you know, even with the Cardinals a little bit, not maybe not as much lately, but just always felt like Paul Goldschmidt in a big spot. The Cubs could never get him out. Uh, I, so he's my guy. I picked him. I thought, you know, he, he crushes every, a lot of teams, a lot of people, but it just always felt like the Cubs, he, they can never get him out in a big, in a major spot. Well, Jeremy, you're not wrong. Paul Goldschmidt, a name that strikes fear into my heart as a Cubs fan. He had some games against the Diamondbacks that just absolutely tore my heart out. And again, that's impressive for a guy who isn't a division opponent to get that status. And then of course he became a division opponent. Uh, Thanks for that D-backs. But for his career, Paul Goldschmidt, again, a very good offensive player for his career. He bat, he has batted 291. He's gotten on base at 389, which is impressive. He slugged 516. And that of course is an OPS of 905. For his career against the Cubs, he has played 78 games. And in those 78 games, he has a 310 batting average above his career average, a 413 on base percentage above his career average, a 573 slugging above his career average. And if you've done the math in your head in the last five seconds, that adds up to a 986 OPS, also 80 points above his career average. And in those 78 games, 18 home runs, 52 driven in, and 18 doubles. So Paul Goldschmidt, a guy who terrorized the Cubs before he was a Cardinal, and now that he is a Cardinal and playing against the Cubs 19 times a season, he is no less terrifying. Uh, So again, thanks for that, D-backs. Not quite the Marlins trading Christian Yelich to the Brewers, but it's uh, it's somewhere up there. And I am happy to report that I have pulled a Cub killer out of the uh, the Ooh. archives of hatred here. And there's a little bit of a, uh, a Marlins connection here. I believe he ended his career with the Marlins, uh, and I'm correct. He ended his career with the Marlins last year. I'm going with former longtime Major League catcher Francisco Cervelli. 
Francisco mm-hmm. Cervelli, a longtime Pittsburgh Pirate, and it felt like the Cubs could simply never get him out. For his career, Francisco Cervelli hit 268. He got on base at 358, so he wasn't a complete slouch with the bat. He only slugged 382, and that, of course, is a 740 OPS. Let's compare that to his career against the Cubs. In his career against the Cubs, which strangely is only 56 games, uh, you would have thought it would have been a little higher being a division opponent for as long as he was, but he batted 290, which is above his career average. He got on base at 363 above that career average. He slugged 470. So he slugged nearly 100 points higher against the Cubs than he did for his career. And that, of course, is an OPS of 833. Uh, And in those games against the Cubs, again, 56 games for his career, seven home runs, 38 runs driven in. Francisco Cervelli, not a big counting stats guy. For his career, he only, and I say only, I have no major league home runs, but for his career, he only hit 41 home runs in the major leagues, seven of those against the Cubs. So I think we can very firmly put him in the category of Cub killer. Not just a great player who is also good against the Cubs, but a guy who was average against every other team, but against the Cubs, he turns into an all-star. So Francisco Cervelli, uh, I know he retired because of concussion issues repeatedly. Uh, I hope he is in all the best health physically, but I don't miss seeing him out there against the Cubs. And I bet he batted like 700 against the Cubs in early April starts under 50 degrees in high leverage situations at Wrigley Field. It always seemed like he was the one up. Maybe it was opening day. Maybe it was the home opener or opening series. He'd be up there with the bases loaded, two outs, tie game, two strikes, and he'd put one in the bleachers or he'd line one down the left field line. I truly do not miss seeing him out there. Just the, the textbook average player who it felt like the Cubs could never retire. Well, I, I don't know that uh, – well, I'm glad that you found someone, Randall, that you were able to pot a name. I didn't like that you didn't have uh, anything there to contribute to the Cubs killer segment, and it was always fun to kind of pull out a name from the past, from the present, and take a look at the stats and see whether or not they are, in fact, Cubs killers. Um, well, lots of stuff. We got through a lot tonight. We talked some Bears. We talked some Cubs. Uh, Cubs are coming home, and there is reason to be excited. Back to a full Wrigley Field, a rare Friday night game tomorrow. That should be interesting, and an opportunity to uh, build on this first place standing in the National League Central. Uh, we'll be back with another edition. Next one will be 24, so we'll have some Dexter Fowler and some other Cubs to talk about, and um, hopefully some Cubs victories on this upcoming homestand is something we'll talk about as well. Thanks for joining us though. Again, we're on Twitter at BTYL podcast. We'll see you next time.